All right, Psalm 47, we pick back up this evening, and Psalm 46, 47, and 48, uh, many believe, are kind of like this uh, trilogy that's given to us from the Holy Spirit, and it seems that perhaps the backdrop in these three particular psalms is sort of celebrating God's powerful deliverance uh, during the days of King Hezekiah when the Assyrians, remember, were threatening uh, as they were besieging the city of Jerusalem and the Assyrians were threatening to conquer and to take over Jerusalem. And things looked very uh, scary. It looked as if it was evident that the city of Jerusalem was going to be conquered. Uh, you can read the story in Second Kings chapter 19. But ultimately, as we talked about briefly last time, uh, God intervened. Uh, and in one night, God changed everything. And what looked like was going to be an absolute catastrophe and that there was no way out and no way of escape, God intervened and he turned the tables. And in one night, everything changed. And God has the ability to do that when he gets involved in a situation. Remember, it says that God sent one angel and overnight, 185,000 Assyrians ended up being slaughtered by this one angel that God sent forth to help his people. Uh, and when they woke up in the morning, the Assyrians were not only scattered their enemy all over, but they had turned and began to, to leave and to depart. And God has a way to work on our behalf and bring great victories for us as his people. And it seems that Psalms 46, 47, and 48 are kind of these celebratory Psalms reflecting upon that as the backdrop. Uh, so what's interesting is Psalm 46 God makes that beautiful refrain, that statement where he said there, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the earth. And perhaps, as we said last time, God perhaps was saying that to them, encouraging his people, listen, you don't have to fight. You don't have to resist. Uh, you don't have to go out and enter into conflict. The battle belongs to the Lord. You just be still, take your hands off, just wait upon me, believe in what I'm able to do, and watch, I will be exalted. I'm God. I'm going to do something powerful, and that's exactly what God did. They woke up the next morning, and their problem was resolved. God took care of it overnight. Now, we go from being still and just knowing that he's God and that he'll be exalted to now we come to Psalm 47, and it's almost as if now the, the, the entire attitude shifts. Now it's about great celebration and rejoicing over what God has done in this victory for them because this psalm opens up by saying, Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples, and shout to God with the voice of triumph, for the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. So the psalm opens with basically an exhortation to enter into really, you could fairly say, you know, very passionate celebration of God and the victories that he brings and the way that he works on our behalf. We have reference here in verse one to doing things like clapping one's hands, uh, shouting to God with the voice of triumph. Uh, notice there, the idea is not being dispassionate. The idea is being very passionate, very enthusiastic, you know, clapping one's hands, shouting with the voice to give, uh, you know, gratitude unto the Lord. And, you know, as we look at this uh, statement here, as God's encouraging the people of Israel to do this, and certainly you and I as his followers as well, uh, it is somewhat convicting sometimes to think about the reality that we find it completely acceptable to do things like shout with passion and enthusiasm and to clap our hands and to celebrate at things like sporting events, right? If you ever watch a sporting event uh, and, and you see what happens in a stadium, if you've ever attended a sporting event, uh, people do a whole lot of shouting, right? And they do a whole lot of clapping, and there's a whole lot of passion and tremendous enthusiasm, and none of that seems inappropriate, right? Nobody's like, what are you doing, man? Settle down. N none of that goes on, right? It, it, shouting and clapping and getting excited and showing enthusiasm for the team when they triumph and score a touchdown or they score a basket or they score a goal or hit a home run, whatever, that's completely acceptable. If you go to something like an awards ceremony and you at a graduation, you know, people clapping their hands and shouting for their loved one, that's all considered completely appropriate. And yet in some way, 
I don't know what it is if we're afraid maybe we're going to get a little too carried away once in a while. It's almost as if it's like taboo sometimes in the church to clap hands or to get excited or to, to, to shout forth praise to the Lord in the midst of you know worship. It's almost as if somehow, hey, whoa, 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 whoa there. We, we don't want to get out of control. We don't want to get a little too excited or whatever. Uh, and look, I, I think there's certainly a balance. I think that hyper-emotionalism can certainly start to become a you know, distraction. But I think by the same token, there's a balance somewhere in this. Uh, and God certainly is worthy of passionate worship. Uh, and I have been a part of churches that have been on both ends of that spectrum. You know, my you know, very first experience is I had never been uh, to church. I, I grew up you know, kind of being unchurched, never had any upbringing in church or anything. And my very first experiences uh, with church in any way was going to a Pentecostal worship gathering. My, my best friend in high school was, was a black guy. And when he first took me to church, it was predominantly in all black. I was very evidently the only visitor there, but very charismatic, hyper Pentecostal, three and a half hour long worship gathering. That was my first experience with church. So to me, that's what church was like. So I, I'm always toning myself down uh, so that people don't think I'm too excited or I don't distract people all the time because that, that was my first experience, uh, was you know, great enthusiasm and a lot of passion. And look, I, I, I greatly value my Pentecostal brothers and sisters in Christ for the tremendous passion and excitement and enthusiasm that they have. Now, again, there are certain things I certainly don't agree with, and I think some things can get a little bit hyper-emotional and, and out-of-balanced as well. Uh, and yet, at the same time, I've been a part of other church gatherings where it is the most somber, kind of tight-laced. Uh, and I, I think there's really a balance that God's Word calls us to, where at times we don't kind of err on either side of that. And here, very evident, God's just something, done something marvelous, right? God's just done a miraculous, powerful, incredible thing. And, and what's the proper response? Clap your hands for the Lord, he's saying. Shout to the Lord. Thank you, God. You're awesome, God. So great what you've done. And, you know, I think sometimes the Lord is worthy of that. Again, if our greatest sports team and their triumphs are worthy of it, the triumphs of the Lord are much greater. Uh, and look, I think the, uh, you know, uh, the Eagles can be awesome at times. <laughs> but they're nowhere near as awesome as God. I, you know, I, I watched the Super Bowl together with Chris and Steve Hogan and a couple guys from the church here. And it, there was quite a bit of clapping and shouting a few years ago and jumping around a living room uh, for the Philadelphia Eagles. But certainly uh, the Lord's much more awesome than they are. Uh, and he certainly is a great king over all the earth, and that king is worthy of our excitement and our enthusiasm. So again, uh, we need to keep our hearts in the right place, and there's nothing wrong with a little bit of healthy, appropriate passion towards the Lord, again, and how we're worshiping, especially if we're wanting to glorify him and doing it in a way that's, again, not drawing attention to ourselves and out of place. He says there in verse 3, regarding the triumph of the Lord and the, the great things that he's done, he says, verse 3, and he will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. And that's exactly what God had just done for the children of Israel in Jerusalem when he had conquered uh, in that great deliverance he brought uh, from the Assyrians. He says, verse 4, And he will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob. And remember, Jacob was just another name for Israel, uh, for the people of Israel, the excellence of Jacob whom he loves. And again, the term Selah or Think upon that. So the psalmist recognized that the reason God had brought this great triumph for the people of Israel, for the Jews, when Jerusalem was surrounded, was because of the fact that he has great love for Jacob or for the people of Israel. And because God loves them and God has a special, unique plan for them, which involves the inheritance that he gave to them, which is the land of Israel. Again, and this is why, you know, one of the reasons why replacement theology and ideas that want to take away the identity of Israel nationally being separate from the church as a spiritual institution is, is very off target and, and completely distorts our understanding of Scripture. God has given to the nation of Israel a land. And, and, and God's given them that land as an inheritance. The land belongs to him. 
And God has chosen to give that land particularly to the chosen people, the Jews, by design and for his plans and purposes. And here the psalmist even refers, the reason why God gave us triumph is because he loves us and he has chosen our inheritance for us, referring to the land, that God chose that inheritance, that they would inherit the land uh, of Canaan and, and God drove out the nations and gave that land to them freely as an inheritance. Now, in the same way that God chose the inheritance of the land, God gave a land to Israel, God has given a life unto us. God gave them a physical land, and that physical land in a picture, in a type, is really like the spiritual life that God's given to us. And so when you look at the book of Joshua, and, and they go in and they fight battles, and they have to fight against enemies to conquer and to take over the possession of the inheritance that God gave to them and wanted them to have— those were literal battles to fight, to, to acquire a literal land as their inheritance. But in a way that pictures the spiritual life for you and I, God has an inheritance, a spiritual inheritance for us. And as we fight our battles against enemies and things in our lives, we experience the inheritance the Lord has for us. And God's chosen our inheritance in the same way. Uh, we're told in first Peter chapter one, that, that we have an inheritance, which is eternal. That, that's incorruptible, undefiled in heaven that doesn't fade away. And God's chosen us to be his children and he has chosen an inheritance for us. But I tell you, above all else, what I love is the very fact that verse four reminds us that it always goes best for us as God's people when we let God choose for us. He said, he will choose our inheritance. And you know, whether it's our eternal inheritance whether it's our spiritual inheritance, whether it's God choosing the calling he has for us as an individual, which may be different than the calling he has for other people around us, whether it's God choosing the plan that he has for us, which may be unique and specific in comparison to other people and the plan that he chooses for other people to have. It always works best when we don't choose for ourselves and we say, God, how about you choose for us? God, how about you choose my inheritance for me? God, how about you be the one to determine and make those selections on my behalf? Because see, God has way more wisdom than I do. And the more I've walked with the Lord and the older I get in my Christian maturity, more and more I find myself saying, Lord, can you just please choose for me? You know, I mean, many times over the years in raising my daughters, they, often they would just say, Dad, can you just, just, can you just choose for me? It's too stressful. I don't want to, Dad, just choose for me. And the only reason they would say something like that is for two reasons. Is one, they understand a relationship. They understand that I love them and that I want what's best for them and that I would certainly choose the absolute best thing for them. And secondarily, they recognize that there's a, a greater depth of maturity as they were younger and I was older. And dad, you have more wisdom and more experience, so you know better. So you love me, you'll always pick what's best for me and you have a better ability to choose than I do. Well, look, if that's the case on a human level, how much more is that true for us with our father in heaven? Lord, choose for me, please. <laughs> You choose the right inheritance for me. Just indicate to me what you've chosen. And I'll gladly take what you choose for me rather than trying to go out and pick and choose for myself. Much better to just embrace whatever he chooses for us because of his great love for us. Verse five, he goes on to say there, God has gone up with a shout. Now here the picture is like a, a military parade of triumph. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet again the, the trumpet was often used uh, in the military activities in the ancient culture and so the picture there you know god going up with a shout departing from where he was uh, with the sound of a trumpet because he had just brought a great victory for them and what's the appropriate response again when god does something victorious he conquers and brings victory in our battles for us verse six here's the appropriate response right there sing praises to god Sing praises, sing praises to our king. Just in case you didn't hear yet, he says, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. So take notice there. If my math is correct, one, two, three, four, five times. God says, sing praises to him. God finds pleasure when people choose to worship him through song. Now, 
We can try and debate all day long why that is. Well, I don't like to sing. I don't sound good when I sing. Really, at the end of the day, worship isn't about you and I anyway. It's about God. Worship's not about how it feels to me. Did I have a good experience? Is there an experience that happens when we worship? Yes, but that's a secondary thing. But the primary purpose of worship is a sacrifice of praise. We're, we're giving something unto the Lord. We're ascribing worth. That's where worship, worship, that's where the word originally came from. We're ascribing worth unto the Lord. So we're praising him. We're giving him thanksgiving and honor for being who he is, as the psalm describes here, verse 2, that he's the most high, that he's awesome, that he's a great king that he brings triumphs in our life so that we're not defeated. Instead, he helps us to find victory because he loves us and he's chosen great things for us. And all the reasons of who he is and his greatness, because he is a great king, that's why he asks us to sing praises unto him. That's one of the main vehicles. That's not the only way to worship God, but it is one of the primary ways whereby God wants us to offer worship unto him. It's one of the things that we are going to do for all of eternity. Read the book of Revelation. People are singing around the throne of God. Well, I don't like to sing. Well, you're not going to like heaven then because we sing a lot. Because when you're in his presence and you see how awesome he is, something within you in your eternal glorified body, and again, the nice part is you don't have sinful fleshly inhibitions anymore. You're going to want to just sing and join in the song and sing. And, and, and I imagine you're probably going to want to clap your hands and shout and triumph and, and rejoice when you really see how incredible God really is. And it all is seen fully in a way that we don't see it all fully now. You know, the problem now is just these earthly human bodies. We have all these inhibitions and insecurities and this and that. And perhaps, I don't know, maybe that's one of the reasons why God does like us to sing to him, because it does stuff like overcome our pride. It does stuff like make us humble ourselves before the Lord and acknowledge that we're weak and finite and frail and insignificant and he's awesome. And there's something about that, you know, that God recognizes as beautiful and he gets pleasure by it. And it's also healthy for us to kind of help our perspective to be in the right place. So the psalmist here tells us multiple times, sing praises. And in verse seven, he even tells us, notice, to worship with, with intelligence. He says, sing praises with understanding. And I like that the New King James translates it that way. Some of the other translations don't because that's the idea is that our worship of God is not just mindless activity. What did Jesus say? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That every part of our being, but, but even our mind. That is singing with understanding means that as I'm singing to the Lord, I'm paying attention and actually thinking through why I'm saying what I'm saying. That as I'm following words on the screen or if I'm singing those words from memory, that I'm actually keeping my mind engaged and I'm not thinking about, oh, I got to change the tires but, and, and my mind's somewhere else. No, my mind's engaged and I'm actually focusing and putting my mind on the Lord and thinking through what I'm actually conveying and communicating instead of just mindlessly going through rote and routine as we can do sometimes. That we sing with understanding because I tell you something much more meaningful happens when our understanding is engaged and we're singing and praising the Lord in that way. He says, verse eight, God reigns over the nations. And that's true. How wonderful to know that he reigns over all the nations and God sits on his holy throne and the princes of the people have gathered together the people of the God of Abraham for the shields of the earth belong to God and he is greatly exalted. Now, again, the picture here is God's universal reign over all the earth. Whether mankind is acknowledging that or not at this point, at one point in time, all nations and all tongues from all tribes and kindreds are going to bow their knee and acknowledge the, the, the king is truly God himself. And here the psalmist is referring to this reality. And even in verse nine there, when he speaks about the shields of the earth belong to God, the indication there when he talks about the shields of the earth, what do shields do? They provide protection, right? A shield is used to protect and, and bring defense. So in a sense, it seems what he's alluding to is the protection of any place or any person on earth belongs to God. That God at any point in time, doesn't matter what you have, you know, U.S. military, Iron Dome in Israel, the, the, the ultimate protection is God. And this is what the people of Israel many times have recognized 
throughout the years again and again as they've been outnumbered, attacked so many times that their defense has been God. That God has been their shield. God has been the one who has come to them to aid them in their battles and to help them. And that God himself is the one who's over all nations. And that same thing applies to any nation. God can make any nation vulnerable at any time. Or God can protect any nation at any time. Dependent upon that really is going to be what is our relationship towards God. Uh, And this is why it's so important not to forsake God and turn away from him. Because if we forsake him, then how can we blame him if he forsakes us? And he says, well, you, you, you didn't need me, so why are you asking me to protect you now? Why are you asking me to shield you? You, you? you told me get out of your country. You told me get out of your lives, but now you want me to protect you? And to sh- Well, God says, you, you forsook me. What? You asked me to leave. That, your safety was me. And this is why it's so important, I think, for us to continue to keep our eyes upon the Lord, to remember our complete protection and shielding us from many of the harmful things often can happen to us is fully dependent upon right relationship with God and same with any of the nations. You know, as you read verses eight and nine, in some ways there's a illusion there as well, I believe, to what's ultimately gonna happen. Zechariah you know, 12, 13, and 14 describe how even when the time of the millennial reign comes, how all nations are gonna begin to flood together into Jerusalem when Jesus is actually there ruling and reigning during the kingdom age. And it says all nations are going to come together, gathering to Jerusalem and worship. Zechariah chapter 8 says literally men from every nation are going to come and they're going to tug on the sleeve of, of a Jew and say, bring us up to, to your capital. We've heard that God is with you. And something very marvelous and wonderful is going to happen when people from all nations at some point recognizing the true king is there upon his throne as men from all nations come to the throne of God to worship Jesus once he's returned. Psalm 48, another one of these, again, celebratory psalms, says, Great is the Lord, and notice, again, greatly to be praised. Because he's great, therefore he's greatly to be praised. He says, In the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king, God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. So here he's beginning to speak about the uniqueness of Mount Zion. And again, Mount Zion is another reference really for the city of Jerusalem. And what he's describing here is how God has uniquely placed this city, Jerusalem, and situated it exactly the way it is, even in its topography, you know, some 2,500 feet above sea level. And when you look at the city of Jerusalem, where God's established it, and Zechariah 12 says that Jerusalem will become like a, a, a cup of trembling, like the nations will be drunk over the city of Jerusalem. And we've seen this all throughout history again and again, where there's something about the city of Jerusalem that makes nations stumble and stagger and 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 the beautiful thing is that though they are where they are god says they've been situated in such a way that it's beautiful in elevation if you look at strategically how the city of jerusalem sits really on three of the four sides of jerusalem there there are tremendous valleys on the southern side on the eastern side on the western side there are valleys uh, and only on the northern side of Israel is there really sort of more direct access to the city, which makes the city a lot more easy to be defended just from a natural topography standpoint. Because if you're higher up in elevation and your enemy has to come from valleys, it's much easier to fire down or throw things down when you have enemies that are trying to come up. And that's probably perhaps here even the reference to the, the sides of the north. The idea is the other sides other than the north. He says it's beautiful in elevation in the way it's been situated, because it is the city, notice, of the great king, and God is in her palaces. I don't know any other city on the earth where the Bible calls it the city of the great king, and that God is there dwelling among it. And again, that is why that city has a measure of protection and military preservation over it. Really, the reason is because God is among it, the Bible says. The very presence of God there among Jerusalem, as the, in this day it was the temple and God's presence was manifested there. He says God is the refuge of that city. Again, that's why when it was often besieged and attacked, God would bring great deliverance. It was not just the way it was situated 
in the topography of how it was elevated, but the bigger issue was that God's presence was among the people. And it was God's presence that would bring victory and success when they were attacked. And, you know, same for us. The thing that's going to give us victory at any time when we're attacked or going through difficulty isn't necessarily the circumstantial things. It's the spiritual things. It's the fact that God's presence is among us and with us and that God himself, as we read there in verse three, literally he becomes our refuge. He becomes the one to protect us, our refuge and our strength. He describes in verse four how notice when the nations and other kings came together that the presence of God intimidated them. Look what he says, verse four. For behold, the kings assembled. They passed by together. They saw it and so they marveled. That is, they looked upon this city of the great king. Something about the city of Jerusalem caused them to recognize that there was something supernatural and special about that particular city. He says they troubled, they were hastened away. Fear took hold of them as pain as of a woman in birth pangs when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. So he's describing there how as kings would assemble and pass by and look upon Jerusalem, they would recognize there is something unique. There's something special there. And of course, what it was mainly was they sensed the the presence of God and it struck fear into their hearts. He says, verse eight, as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts. Again, he says, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. I love the way that's just described there. Verse eight, as we have heard that as we've heard testimony from others, as we've heard testimony from others, so we have now seen ourselves in the city of the Lord of hosts. In other words, it's almost as if you could sense the psalmist saying, we had heard before of the victories of the God of Jacob. We had heard before times past where God came and he intervened and he brought powerful deliverance or he had done miracles for his people. We've heard others talk about their experiences with God But now the psalmist in a firsthand sense, right after this overcoming of the Assyrians, he says, but now we've seen it for ourselves. We've experienced it firsthand. You know, that is exactly what God wants for every one of us. Certainly, it's wonderful to hear the testimony of other people's experiences with God. God wants us to hear what he's done in other people's lives that encourages us, that causes us to be inquisitive. But God wants us to see it firsthand for ourselves. God wants us to be able to say, in a sense, as we have heard what God did in other people's lives, so now we've seen it ourselves. We've experienced it firsthand. You know, that's what God wants. God wants you to have your own firsthand experience with him. Not just to hear about what he's done in your spouse's life or your parents' life or your children's life or your friend's life. God wants you to see for yourself. That's why the Bible says, come, taste and what? See that the Lord is good. Remember, we saw that back in Psalm 34, and we talked about that reality of how you know, God, God puts us as those who know him, those who have a relationship. He puts us as the salt and light on the earth. What does salt do? It's not only a preservative. Salt's also something that creates an appetizing effect, right? It makes people thirsty. And so we're to basically do that. We're to be like the salt of the earth, and our very life should say unto people, hey, come, taste and see. Taste and see for yourself that the Lord is good that our life would be used in that way so that people would first hear from us, but then they would see for themselves and God would establish it in their life in a very personal way as well. Verse nine, he says, we have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. So they had spent time thinking uh, in the temple of God in the house of the Lord and notice thinking upon what? The loving kindness of God. The fact that God's not only loving, but his love makes him very kind towards us, very gracious and compassionate. And and he says, we we thought, Lord, we've taken time to just consider and think upon that. According to your name, O God, he says, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand, he says, is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion or Jerusalem, he says, rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgment. So they had realized that God had powerfully intervened, judged the Assyrians. And as they rejoice in this reality, they're saying here, Lord, 
When you bring your judgments, he says, your right hand is full of righteousness. You know, I'm a sense what the psalmist is saying there is when the hand of the Lord gets involved, right things come to pass. Because God's hand is full of righteousness. And what God does is always righteous. And when the Lord's hand gets involved in any situation, whether it was the attack and surrounding of Jerusalem in that day, or whether it's any situation where wrong things are happening, the right hand, which is the hand of strength, the place of authority of any king, that the king's right hand is the place of his authority. And he says, Lord, your right hand, it's full of righteousness. You know, when we pray and seek the Lord, that's what we want to ask. Lord, I just, Lord, would you get your hand involved in this situation? The wonderful thing is when you ask God to get his hand involved in a situation, God always is going to do the right thing. And he's going to cause things to turn in a right direction. That's why we want the Lord to intervene in our battles rather than us, you know, getting in there and slugging it out ourselves. And a lot of times we end up then making a mess of things and making it worse. What we should be saying is, Lord, we're going to be still, know that you're God, we're praying, and Lord, get your hand involved. You judge and do what's best in this situation because his hand involved will always do what's right. He then gives an encouragement as the psalm concludes to go and to evaluate, it seems, kind of the city of Jerusalem and the great things God had done amongst it. He says, walk about Zion, that is walk about the city. Go all around her, he says. Count her towers, that is take notice. There's been no destruction. All the towers were still standing. Mark well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generation following for this is God, our God forever and ever. And he will be our guide even to death. So the psalmist says, look, go and and, and tour the city. Go and take notice that God came to the assistance of his people. He says, walk and go and count the towers and mark well, consider, take notice, he says. And why does he want them to see the victory God brought and the ways that God worked on their behalf? He says, verse 13, which is very important, he says, so that you can do what? Tell it to the next generation. So that you can tell it to the generation following. Why is it important that we become familiar with the works of God and see God's hand at work and take notice of the things that God's done in our lives and is doing in our lives so that we can convey that spiritual truth and knowledge to the next generation, to the generation following us? Because if we fail to do that, we put the next generation at a tremendous disadvantage. And, and the people of Israel understood this. Look, we have got to declare the works of God to the next generation. Because if they don't know God and know what God can do and what God wants to do, they're going to be at a tremendous disadvantage. So he says, take notice of these things so that you can convey these things to the next generation following. And I love that little statement there, verse 14. I have to tell you, there's been a time or two reading through my Bible when this was a word from the Lord for me. He says, verse 14, this is God. This is God. You know, sometimes we're praying, Lord, is this you? Is this from God? I don't know if this is God. Sometimes perhaps maybe the word of the Lord is, this is God. Why is this happening? Because this is God. Lord, I don't know. Is, Is this my flesh or is this you? There's been a time or two when I've been praying that and pondering and and the Lord said to me, relax, this is God. Take it, embrace it, accept it, walk forward in faith in it. This is God. It is God. God's doing this. God's in this. And sometimes the Lord wants us to recognize that reality. And sometimes it takes maybe walking and considering and contemplating. and, And he says, recognize it's God. And oh no, but... Lord, it's still very scary. Even if this is you, what, how, how am I going to do it? It's, it's going to be scary. Well, look what he says, verse 14. He'll be our guide. <laughs> Even to death. He'll guide you through the process. It's God, and he'll guide you through the process. Just rest and trust in him. Psalm 49, let's move through this before we conclude, is basically a psalm that is kind of a reminder not to envy the wealthy and to, you know, Put too much emphasis upon wealth and financial resources. Look what he says here. He says, hear this, all peoples. So notice, we all need this message. Hear this, all peoples, because everybody is prone to having a right 
and a wrong perspective as well on finances and money and trusting and riches, as he's going to talk about. Give ear all the inhabitants of the world. So this message is for anybody. If you're about ready to tune out, God says you're part of the world. Pay attention. Both low and high. Oh, this is just for the high wealthy people. No, it's for the low poor people too. Rich and poor together. So again, we're all still included here. My mouth shall speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart, that is things that I've contemplated and thought through, shall give understanding. I'll incline my ear to a proverb. And again, proverbs were basically catchy sayings to help a, a, a nugget of wisdom to be remembered. So he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share something as a proverb. I'll disclose, he says, my dark saying. The idea is dark in the sense of like a deep thought coming from somewhere deep within. That's the idea of a dark saying, a thought from deep down within. And he says, I'm going to disclose it on the harp, which is interesting. So it tells us that this originally was to a degree probably something that was set to music. So he says, I'm going to share something that's valuable, important, some understanding, a, a, a proverb. And he says, I'm going to dis- declare these deep thoughts on the harp. It was set to music. And if you think about it, that in some ways is a very good way at times to learn things because think how many things we have learned right through a song, right? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K. From the very beginning, music is a very helpful tool to learn and to remember things. The B-I-B-L-E, right? That's the book for me. Stand alone on the word of God. And so sometimes music is a great way to help with the memory. And so apparently this was uh, sung to music. Now, I'm not going to try and sing it. Don't, don't get nervous. That was about enough singing for you, I'm sure. But he says, verse 5, here's the message now. Why should I fear in the days of evil? When iniquity at my heels surrounds me. So the psalmist says, I'm living in evil days and iniquity surrounds me. Nothing new under the sun, right? But the psalmist is going to indicate he has a lack of financial resources in the midst of evil days. And it would be a a potential thing for the psalmist to start to get fearful because he feels like he lacks resources And the days are getting darker and more evil. And his concern seems to be, oh, no, I don't have as much resources as other people have. How am I going to survive through these days? And what the word of God is going to say, look, lack of resources is not a problem in evil days. Not trusting God is a problem in evil days because God is our resource. And he's going to say there are those who are trusting in their resources in the midst of evil days and they're, they're headed down a very wrong path. So he says, why should I fear? The idea is we shouldn't fear in the midst of evil days. Notice what he says, verse 6. Look, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches. Notice, nothing wrong. The Bible nowhere demonizes wealth or being rich. Uh, Abraham was wealthy, David was wealthy, Solomon was wealthy, many godly individuals were wealthy. The Bible doesn't say there's anything evil about wealth. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Christians always misquote that. Money's the root of all kinds of evil. (laughs) The Bible says the love of money, not money. Money's neutral. Money's a tool, right? Money can be used as a wonderful instrument to do great things, to advance God's causes and help people out, to show God's love and and to advance the kingdom of God. The problem is, is money is a wonderful servant. It's a horrible master. And the error and problem we get into is when God allows us by his grace to begin to acquire a little bit of wealth or additional resources, however you want to measure the term of wealth, and we start to trust in wealth. You know, the Bible speaks of trusting in uncertain riches instead of in the living God who gives us all things. That is, we start to trust in the actual resources themselves or the amount in the bank account or our 401k or whatever, and we start to trust in our wealth. And then even worse, we start to boast in the multitude of riches. We actually start becoming boastful, and it's what we always want to talk about, how much we have or what we can do with our finances. And we start to become almost arrogant, and he says that's not a good thing. And look what he says. Here's the reason why, verse 7. 
because none of them, that is those trusting in their wealth, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly and it shall cease forever that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. So you know, so the Bible brings attention to why it's worthless to trust in wealth because he says it does not matter how much wealth a person has. There's one thing that wealth cannot do. It can't do anything to save a person's soul. Wealth cannot do anything to redeem a person, to purchase a person back to God, because he says the cost of a human soul is incredibly costly. He says there in verse seven, by wealth, no one can redeem his brother. Again, to redeem is to pay a purchase price. The idea is you can't pay off God eternally. And sadly, This is where trusting in wealth can become a real problem because Jesus said it's harder for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God than it is to put a camel through the little eye of a a needle hole. Because why? When someone is trusting in their wealth, guess what they struggle doing? Trusting God. Because their solution to everything is I'll pay someone off. I'll get myself out of a problem. I'll write a check. And when you have the ability to do that, God says it's actually not as much of an advantage as many people think. It's actually a a greater challenge for people. Because when you have a resource that in this earthly existence can be used to solve problems, to bribe people, to get people to do what you want them to do, God says that's actually an additional challenge for people, quite honestly. Because it's a temptation to to turn to that and to trust in that, where if someone doesn't have anything, they're desperate, right? Why do you think the gospel flourishes in many poor countries? Because people know that they're desperate. They know that they have tremendous need. And so they look beyond themselves and they realize, hey, we, we need help beyond ourselves. And he says, you know, the wealth that someone has, you can't use your money to save a person's soul He says there very clearly because he says the redemption of a soul is costly, costly. Now, that shows us how valuable a human soul is because, right, what's the redemption of a soul cost? The blood of God's son, Jesus Christ. Peter talks about that we have been redeemed, not with temporal things. And he says, first Peter, like gold and silver, but by the precious blood of christ it required the tremendous cost of the death of the son of god himself in order for our souls to be redeemed that's the high cost which tells us two things that's how valuable your soul is to god your soul is tremendously valuable and people's souls are tremendously valuable because god was willing to pay that kind of a cost and that's important for us to remember especially what really matters most is getting more gold and stuff and money. And God says, you know what the greatest value is? Souls. Souls. In God's estimation, that is the thing that holds the greatest value on the earth because God was willing to pay the highest cost for the souls of mankind in order to redeem souls through the work of his son. He says, so that they would continue to live eternally. And notice verse nine, not see the pit. God doesn't want people to spend eternity in the pit of destruction, but with eternal life in him in heaven. He says, verse 10, for he sees wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless person perish. So again, whether someone is wise, whether they're a a fool, two contrasts, right? Wise men, what's their end result? They die. The fool That senseless person, they as well perish and leave their wealth to others, right? No no matter how much you accumulate, you can't take it with you. I've done funerals way too many times in the past, you know, 20 plus years of my life. I have never one time been a part of a funeral procession where there's been a U-Haul behind the hearse. Never, never. You take nothing with you. The Bible says naked you enter into this world and Naked, you go back out. You start with nothing, you end with nothing. Anything you acquire and you obtain, you just leave it for others, right? 
And, and this is to just give us a proper perspective. He says, whether a person's wise or foolish, death ultimately comes. There is an end, and they just end up leaving their wealth to other people. That thing they strive so hard, right? People try so hard to acquire wealth and wealth and wealth, and you just leave it all behind. You just leave it all to others, he says. But their inner thought, here's the problem, verse 11, their inner thought is, is that their houses will last forever. They're too focused on thinking this life is so permanent when it's really very temporal and fleeting. He says their dwelling places to all generations, interesting, they call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain, the Bible says. He is like the beasts, just like all the animals that ultimately perish. But again, this false confidence, putting too much reliance upon this present world system. You know, it's interesting, again, how arrogant we can be as people. Verse 11, he says, you know, men thinking they're going to be around forever and that their houses will last forever. He says they even call lands after their own names, right? Disney land, right? I mean, we got to leave our mark somehow. I'm going to be here forever. I got to, you know, I got to use all my wealth and I got to leave my name here forever. And, and he says, men do this and they fail to realize that life is fleeting and everyone perishes. And, and life is just a vapor, the Bible says. You know, there's something beyond this present life. Verse 13, he says, this is the way, notice, of those who are what? Foolish. Those who are foolish, who put all their investment in this life and try and acquire things in this life. He says, this is the way of those who are foolish and their posterity, uh, he says, who approve their sayings, just like sheep, they are laid in the grave. That is, they're, they're just like vulnerable sheep. Death, look at this language, death shall feed on them. Well, that's a picturesque term, isn't it? Death shall feed on them. You go into the ground and things feed on you. It happens. Your, your body decomposes and things feed on you. You just, life comes to an end, the physical life. The upright, however, he says, shall have dominion over them. Now notice the contrast, the upright, those in right relationship with God, have dominion over them in the morning. And their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. Verse 15, what a beautiful statement. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave and he shall receive me. So a man can do nothing to purchase his own redemption for his own soul, right? There's nothing we can offer to God. No amount of money, no amount of works. But God, I did this. But God, here's that. God, let me write, let me bribe you, let me pay you. And people think that God is going to relate to us just like people relate to one another, right? You can just pay God off. I'm just going to pay God off somehow. In the end, I'll just square up with God. He says, no, you can't give God anything for your soul. Your soul's too costly. The price is too high. But look what he says, verse 10. But God will redeem my soul. Ultimately, what God did for Jesus, God is the one who paid the price for us because it's so high. God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. That's resurrection talk there. It's the very thing we're looking at on Sunday mornings, the power of the grave being overcome because of the resurrection of Christ. And boy, that's a, a wonderful thing to know that God will receive us and redeem us from the very power of the grave to give us everlasting life through the resurrection of his son, Jesus, and the resurrection of our own bodies, that God supplies that for us, what we can't do for ourselves. So the psalmist says, here's the application, verse 16, as he concludes, he says, do not be afraid when one becomes rich. When the glory of his house is increased, right? We see others around us increasing in wealth and that, you know, they're, they're getting, you know, ahead and, and prospering. He says, don't, don't let that intimidate you and worry you when you see other people increasing and, and, and gathering more riches. Verse 17, he says, for when he dies, notice, what did we say? He shall carry nothing away. It's just for this life. He says, so don't overthink about it. He says, his glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lives, he blesses himself, and that's how you can tell you have a wrong perspective on money. While he lives, he blesses himself. For men will praise you when you do well for yourself. Boy, is, is the Bible not so just direct? Men will praise you when you do well for yourself. 
you do well for yourself on this earthly life, God says, you'll get lots of accolades. People will be impressed by you. And, and they'll, they'll bless you and they'll honor you. And right, that's what happens. People meet somebody that's wealthy and they act different around them. Right? I mean, I've, I've literally, I'm, I'm going to tell you something very candidly. I have literally had people before get upset with me over the years of pastoral ministry because somebody would come to the church or attend the church and they felt like I wasn't friendly with them enough because they realized they were a wealthy person. I mean, you, should, you should be a little more friendly to them. I mean, they should be a little more friendly to them. Why? Why? Why should I be more friendly to them than somebody who doesn't give $2 to the church? Everyone's soul matters to God. But, but we do that, right? We meet somebody wealthy. I mean, who do, you meet somebody wealthy or powerful and influential. It's almost like we're... We stand in all of them or honor them, and, and there's something about that. And he says, that's what will happen. Men will praise you when you do well for yourself. People will be impressed by you. There's, there's that kind of thing that goes on. He says, men will praise you when, you when you do well for yourself. But he says, verse 19, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. Verse 20, a man is in honor, yet does not understand that he is just like, notice, the beasts that perish. So again, God's word cautions us of this error of putting too much emphasis and focus upon acquiring wealth or trusting wealth while on this earth. And again, nothing wrong with acquiring wealth. The Bible says that God, Deuteronomy 8, gives us the power to create wealth, right? It's just that we acquire wealth in an honest, upright way, that we use it in a wise manner and that we recognize that we're just stewards of it temporarily while on this earth and that we realize the Lord gives, the Lord takes away and we don't begin to trust in our wealth. We don't begin to get a wrong perspective towards it, but instead that we have an open hand and realize, God, it's yours. Tell me how you want me to, to utilize it and what you want me to do with it. And again, I encourage you, look at passages like you know Luke chapter 12 and Luke chapter 18 and 1 Timothy 6, where the Bible gives instruction in regards to how we manage our wealth and our resources, whatever degree of wealth and resources God gives to us, that we maintain a spirit of contentment, that we be careful, that we don't you know heap up all of this on earth and, and that we're not rich towards God, Jesus speaks about. He says, look, you know, true wealth is spiritual wealth. And look, folks, there's more than one way to be wealthy on this earth, right? I'll gladly boast, I'm a wealthy man. I'm a wealthy man. I've been a wealthy man my whole life long, ever since I met that blonde-haired beauty right there. I got really, it was like a, whoo, thanks for choosing my inheritance, Lord. And then we conceived and made one, and my wealth increased. Then we made another, and I got more rich. Then I got a third one. And I got more rich. And then they all made me poor. <laughs> but I'm wealthy. Wealthy in the right way. Let's stand together. Let's pray.